Hi, this is Shivaraman from Johns Hopkins University. So over the course of this lecture, I'd like to talk a little bit about the most current concepts in the CT evaluation of patients with acute pancreatitis. We'll start by briefly discussing background, including some of the causes of acute pancreatitis. We'll then move on to making the diagnosis on CT and specifically incorporating some of the most recent classification schemes and nomenclature systems into our dictations. We'll then end by talking about a number of different complications, what kind of nomenclature we should be using to describe those complications, and how the nomenclature that we use can have a very specific impact on the patient's ultimate treatment and intervention. Now, acute pancreatitis is a relatively common disorder. There are roughly 300,000 cases per year in the United States. Now, to make the diagnosis, you have to have two of the three following features. A good clinical history of sudden onset abdominal pain, a markedly elevated amylase or lipase level, and a characteristic CT scan. Now, notice that you only have to have two of the three following features. So that means that even if you, you have an amylase or lipase level that's normal or perhaps only minimally elevated, you can still make the diagnosis of acute pancreatitis with a good history and a characteristic CT scan. Now, although there are a large number of different causes for acute pancreatitis, I'd say by far the two most common causes that we encounter in our day-to-day -day practice are going to be alcohol abuse and biliary stones. But that being said, I do see my fair share of drug reactions, post-DRCP pancreatitis, hypotension, and even patients with congenital hyperlipidemia or hypercholesterolemia, and so on and so forth. Now, for the most part, acute pancreatitis is a relatively well-tolerated disorder. The mortality rate is relatively low, probably 1% to 3%, and most of these patients are either treated as outpatients or with a very brief inpatient stay. But that being said, there is a small subset of patients who do extraordinarily poorly. These patients may have mortality rates ranging up to 50%, they're in the hospital for weeks on end, often in the ICU, and they often have extraordinary morbidity and mortality. And these are almost always patients with acute necrotizing pancreatitis. Now, I think it's important to remember that acute pancreatitis is not purely just a biochemical modality. All too often, we assume that the amylase and lipase are pretty much all there is, and the CT scan is kind of superfluous. But that's really not true, first of all. CT does remain the dominant screening modality for patients with acute abdominal pain. So I'd say in the majority of cases, I make the diagnosis on a CT scan, and the clinicians in the emergency room are going to confirm that diagnosis by checking an amylase and lipase level. Secondly, once you've made the diagnosis, it does help you distinguish it from other related findings or mimicking findings, things like an underlying tumor, autoimmune pancreatitis, or even stones causing the pancreatitis. I think most importantly, CT allows you to assess the severity of the disease and ultimately predict which patients are likely to do well and which patients are likely to do poorly, and just as importantly, identify complications and help guide treatment and intervention. Now, there are a number of different clinical grading systems designed to predict which patients are likely to have the worst or have poor clinical outcomes. The earliest, and I think probably the most famous of these clinical grading systems, is the Ransons criteria which incorporates a number of clinical and biochemical markers to determine a patient's ultimate risk for morbidity and mortality. Now, the Ransons criteria is very clinical. It really has very little impact on us as radiologists. But that being said, there are a number of different CT grading systems, again, designed to predict a patient's ultimate clinical outcome. The most famous of these, and the earliest, was the Balthazar classification, originally designed in the mid-80s and then revised again in the early 90s. Now, the Balthazar system is very simple. Essentially, the underlying concept is that the worse your CT scan looks, the more likely the patient is to have a poor clinical outcome. So if you have a patient with mild pancreatitis, you know, minimally elevated lipase level, and an essentially normal-looking pancreas on CT, 
well, they're a Balthazar A. They're likely to have a very good clinical outcome. On the other hand, a patient with a horribly inflamed pancreas with multiple fluid collections, ectopic gas, and pancreatic necrosis, well, they're likely to have a very poor clinical outcome. Now, even though the Balthazar system is probably the most famous, I'd say the most relevant recent classification system is the revised Atlanta classification. Now, again, this really works on very much the same concept. The worse your pancreas looks on CT, the more likely the patient is to have a poor clinical outcome. Now, the one part of this classification system that I'd like to pay special attention to is its emphasis on the degree of pancreatic necrosis. Notice how patients with more than 30% pancreatic necrosis are much more likely to have a poor clinical outcome. That's really a key number. And for that reason, anytime I'm dictating one of these cases, I always like to give some kind of a numerical estimate as to the degree of necrosis. 30%, 50%, 70%. Give the clinician some sense for how much necrosis there is on any given CT. Now, in order to make these diagnoses effectively, I think it's critical to have the right CT protocols in place. At Johns Hopkins, we believe that anyone with suspected pancreatic, pancreatic pathology needs a dual-phase study. So we get arterial phase images at somewhere between 25 to 30 seconds, and then venous phase images at roughly 60 to 70 seconds. Now, I think dual-phase technique is really important. First of all, many of these cases of subtle pancreatic necrosis will often be more evident on either one phase or the other. Sometimes you're going to see it better on the arterial, sometimes you'll see it better on the venous. And by having those dual phases, you really increase your sensitivity for subtle necrosis. Just as importantly, the dual phases are important for identifying vascular complications. The arterial phase will allow you to see small pseudoaneurysms and arterial thromboses, whereas the venous phase images allow you to pick up thrombus within either the SMV or the portal vein. Now, I think it's important that you try to avoid using positive oral contrast in anyone with suspected pancreatic pathology. So if you have a patient in the ER with an elevated lipase, I would strongly recommend using either water or volumen as neutral contrast agents. Positive oral contrast can obscure subtle stones in the ampulla, and beam hardening and streak artifact could potentially interfere with your ability to diagnose the subtle pancreatic mass. Just as importantly, at Johns Hopkins, we strongly believe in the utility of 3D post-processing, and utilizing positive oral contrast can potentially interfere with a lot of 3D post-processing algorithms. Now, in general, when you're talking about acute pancreatitis, you're really thinking about two different subtypes. There's acute interstitial edematous pancreatitis, which makes up the vast majority of cases, but in general is clinically less severe. And then there's acute necrotizing pancreatitis, which is much less common, but tends to have much more morbidity and mortality. So why don't we start by talking about acute interstitial edematous pancreatitis. Again, even though these patients are much more common, they tend to have far better clinical outcomes. In general, you're going to see an enlarged pancreas, loss of normal lobulation, lots of peripancreatic fat stranding, induration, and adjacent fluid in the lesser sac. But that being said, I think it is important to note that you can have a completely normal-looking CT scan and still have acute pancreatitis based on an elevated amylase and lipase level. Remember what I said earlier. The diagnosis is based on any two of the clinical triad. So a characteristic CT scan, an elevated amylase and lipase level, or a characteristic clinical history. So if you have a good history and an elevated lipase level, your CT scan could potentially still be normal. And that's the case in up to a quarter of cases. So here's a relatively classic example of acute edematous pancreatitis. Notice how the pancreas is diffusely enlarged. You're starting to lose those normal pancreatic lobulations, and there's extensive peripancreatic free fluid in the retroperitoneum. This is a classic case of acute edematous pancreatitis. Most importantly, notice how the entirety of the pancreas is enhancing normally. I don't see any areas of hypoenhancement or non-enhancement to suggest there's necrosis. 
Here's another example with a lesser degree of inflammation in fluid. But again, you should be able to make the diagnosis based on the inflammation in the retroperitoneum and the fact that the entirety of the pancreas looks globular, enlarged, and edematous. Once again, there is no evidence of necrosis, hypoenhancement, or non-enhancement. Now, sometimes your pancreas isn't going to look that big and edematous. In this case, the pancreatic parenchyma actually looks pretty normal. You still have some lobulations. I'm not seeing much in the way of enlargement or edema. But in this case, the diagnosis is based on that subtle peripheral hypodensity, fluid, and inflammation in the retroperitoneum. Mild but real acute edematous pancreatitis. Now, for the most part, patients with acute interstitial edematous pancreatitis do very well. Complications are quite rare, and probably 95% of these patients are going to have no complications and are going to be out of the hospital in a day or two. In general, I don't think you need to routinely follow these patients with a repeat CT scan as long as there is no complications on the initial CT and provided that there has been no clinical deterioration or worsening while the patient was in the hospital. Now, I do think it's important to note that acute pancreatitis is not the only inflammatory disorder that we can encounter in the retroperitoneum. Remember, the pancreas lies in the anterior parenal space, which it shares with many other organs, including the duodenum, ascending colon, and descending colon. So it is theoretically possible that a duodenal ulcer, certain forms of severe colitis, or even diverticulitis could all mimic the appearance of pancreatitis on CT. And note that all of these entities have very different treatments and clinical implications compared to acute pancreatitis. So here's an example which, on the face of it, looks like acute edematous pancreatitis. I see lots of fluid, edema, and stranding centered around the pancreatic head and in the retroperitoneum, and I see fluid tracking out in the right anterior parenal space. So why don't we just call this acute pancreatitis and be done with it? But if you look really carefully and you utilize the multiplanar reformats to your advantage, you can see that this inflammatory disorder is not centered around the pancreatic head, but rather is actually centered around the second and third portions of the duodenum. And even more concerningly, there's actually ectopic gas tracking from the duodenum downwards into the mesentery. This is actually an example of a perforated duodenal ulcer, which carries an extraordinarily high morbidity and mortality. And if you had called this acute run-of-the-mill edematous pancreatitis, this patient would have been treated incorrectly and potentially would have suffered significant morbidity. Now, as opposed to acute edematous pancreatitis, acute necrotizing pancreatitis is much less common, probably no more than 25 or 30% of all cases. Nevertheless, these are patients who do extraordinarily poorly. I'd say in general, most of these patients develop at least single organ failure, many will develop multi-organ failure, and the mortality rate may be as high as 30%. Now, to make this diagnosis, you're basically looking for either diffuse or focal areas of pancreatic non-enhancement or severe hypo-enhancement. So it goes without saying that to make this diagnosis, you have to have a contrast-enhanced study. This is a diagnosis that can be sometimes guessed at based on a non-contrast study, but really you can't be sure unless you have contrast on board. Now, as I mentioned earlier, the revised Atlanta classification puts a great deal of emphasis on the number 30%. Patients with greater than 30% parenchymal necrosis are at far higher risk for having a poor clinical outcome. So I really recommend that when you're dictating these studies, you give the clinician a numerical estimate as to the exact degree of parenchymal necrosis. And obviously, we can't give them an exact number. That's impossible for us. But at the very least, we can eyeball it and try to give them some rough sense for how bad the necrosis is. Now, I think uh, it is worth noting that necrotizing pancreatitis occurs because of thrombosis of the pancreatic microcirculation, and that's as a result of surrounding inflammation and edema. And it, that can sometimes take a few days to develop. So in many cases, necrotizing pancreatitis is not visible for the first 48 hours after the onset of symptoms, but is often going to be evident by 96 hours. 
And that's one of the reasons why I never blame the clinicians for re-imaging a patient in the short term if they're either not getting better or if they're clinically deteriorating. In many cases, what looks like edematous pancreatitis on the initial CT will end up looking like horrible necrotizing pancreatitis by 72 to 96 hours. So here's a great example of acute necrotizing pancreatitis. Notice how there's a big phlegmon in the retroperitoneum, horrible induration, fat stranding, and free fluid. But unlike the cases of edematous pancreatitis that I showed you earlier, notice how the pancreatic parenchyma just doesn't look like it's enhancing all that well. I'm seeing some areas in the body that look relatively somewhat enhancing, but if you look at the tail, portions of the head, I really don't see anything that looks like normal parenchyma. In this case, I'd guess that there's probably 50% pancreatic necrosis at least. Now here's an example that's probably even worse. Large phlegmon centered in the lesser sac, very little residual pancreatic parenchyma that's enhancing. The entire body is absent, and I'm seeing little bits of the head and tail that may be still showing some enhancement. This is probably 70% pancreatic necrosis. Now, in most cases, when you're dealing with necrotizing pancreatitis, you're going to see a big phlegmon, and I think it's not a hugely difficult diagnosis. But I think cases that are a little more problematic are those in which there's not a huge phlegmon and the pancreatic shape is preserved. Here's an example where the pancreas looks edematous. There is clearly pancreatitis, but I think this would be relatively easy to just call acute edematous pancreatitis. But if you look really carefully, you can see that there are areas of low density and liquefaction within the pancreatic parenchyma. There is subtle but real pancreatic necrosis here, and probably greater than 30%. And if you're not looking carefully, and if you're not paying attention to each little bit of the pancreatic parenchyma, this is a diagnosis that could be easily missed. Now, I would like to make a distinction between the diagnosis of pancreatic necrosis and extrapancreatic necrosis. Now, pancreatic necrosis obviously means that the pancreatic parenchyma itself is not enhancing, and that carries with it a higher risk of morbidity and mortality. Extrapancreatic necrosis, on the other hand, refers to the leakage of pancreatic enzymes into the peripancreatic soft tissues and fat with associated peripancreatic fat necrosis. Of course, the pancreas itself is going to enhance normally, so these patients don't have the risk of poor clinical outcomes that patients with true pancreatic necrosis do. Now, one of the reasons I like to talk about extrapancreatic necrosis is that even though it doesn't have the same clinical implications, I've often seen it confused for other entities. You can get very nodular, focal, soft tissue thickening along the paracolic gutters and within the mesentery that for all the world can look like a tumor if you're not aware of what the normal appearance of this can look like. So here's an example of that. This patient has acute pancreatitis with a lipase level in the thousands. The pancreas itself is enhancing normally. But notice how there's this abnormal soft tissue extending along the left anterior pararenal space and subsequently descending down along the left gutter. Now, that looks for all the world like soft tissue tumor, right? And if you told me this patient had some kind of a primary malignancy, I'd probably say that maybe that's some form of carcinomatosis. But this patient has acute pancreatitis, and all that is is just pat, fat, extra pancreatic fat necrosis. Here's an, here's an even more concerning imaging uh, study. Again, patient has necrotizing pancreatitis, but you can see that there's actually nodular soft tissue everywhere, in the omentum, within the mesentery. And in this case, if you didn't know any better, you'd wonder, well, is there some kind of an underlying pancreatic mass? Is this carcinomatosis? But again, this is a patient who has extensive extrapancreatic fat necrosis with this nodularity just representing foci of individual necrotic soft tissue. So now that we've talked a little bit about making the diagnosis of pancreatitis and differentiating necrotizing from edematous pancreatitis, why don't we stop there? We'll take a quick break. And when we come back, we'll start talking about some of the many complications that we can encounter and how we can use the revised Atlanta classification nomenclature system to describe those, uh, those complications. 
So thanks a lot, and I'll see you guys soon.